Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. This episode is sponsored by Rimmel Greenhouse Systems, makers of quality greenhouse structures. Whether you're just getting started or buying your 10th tunnel, Rimmel has a structure to fit your needs. I've purchased and grown in Rimmel houses and would recommend them to everyone. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with yet another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. Today, my guest is Deanna, who is a regenerative grain farm her in central North Dakota. She and her husband, Kelly, grow spring wheat, heritage wheat, Egyptian hollis barley, malting barley, and milling oats on their farm this year. They formed their company, Guardian Grains, in 2020 to offer whole grains direct to consumers. This year, they expanded their offerings to consumers to add stone-milled flowers and heritage artisan pasta that they ship all over the U.S. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Michael. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Let's talk about your farm. How long have you guys been on the the land? Well, my husband is a fourth generation on this farm that was homesteaded um, in 1918. So he's been here um, his whole life. And I joined the farm in 2005. And so we have been farming together since then. Very cool. In the early days, what did the farm look like? Was it more just a mix of field crops? Yes. So in the early days, um, my husband and his father adopted um, no-till practices in the 90s. Okay. Um, and so that has been a part of our farming system from from early on, as far as my husband's career goes anyway. And, um, and it was very conventional, um, full-on agronomy. We did all of the things that we thought we were supposed to do to grow more bushels, because Mm -hmm. that's what we were told good farming was, right? We were stuck in that system where we were told that everything we did to the ground would help produce more bushels. And that's all that really mattered, right? So we were stuck in the um, full-on agronomy farming conventionally for a long, long time. And I refer to it as moron farming. So uh-huh. basically we just put moron <laughs> of everything, moron, more fertilizer, more insecticide, more fungicide, more chemical, more, 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 more. We're yeah. always putting and, moron. So and that's how did that I work out for you? It, it worked. Um, if you consider us um, having to double our acres and work countless hours to, you know, support um, our family, the two of us and his parents were farming with us at the time. So um, it worked okay uh, until we realized that it didn't. Right. And so, um, and by that it was, we were just being stretched way too thin. Uh, We were farming almost 6,000 acres. uh, And in, in where in my area in North Dakota, that's, I would say, average to a lot. So, yeah. um, and we were stretched very thin. And like I said, because we were <laughs> more on farming, we were constantly on the land. So mm-hmm. whether that was spraying or seeding or combat, we were constantly on the land. Some of the land got, we would pass over it five or six times wow. throughout the season. So it was a continually effort to, well, to maintain sick plants. Yeah. Uh, and that's what we were doing. We were basically um, treating sick plants all the time. Yeah. So yeah, that's what it was like. <laughs> okay. So let's fast forward a little bit. What was the conversation about the change and how did that change start? Uh, well, it was kind of, it was kind of out of necessity um, because the, what we had been doing wasn't working anymore as far as the heavy inputs. So all of the fertilizer was costing exponentially more than it did the year before. And mm-hmm. um, we were, we had made advancements as far as the fertilizing. We weren't blanket fertilizing anything. We were, you know, um, doing um, variable rate fertilizing early in, well, into the mid 2000s to try to buy soil type. So we were trying to 
you know, um, do it as efficiently as possible. Uh, but it just still, it was just too much. And so <clears throat> we had our daughter in 2013 and, and that was in June and which is a very busy time on the farm. And yes. we had just bought a neighboring farmstead and land that hooked up to my um, father-in-law's farm. And so my husband was gone a lot. And it was about six months into my daughter was about six months old and she was terrified of my husband mm. wow. uh, because she didn't know him because he was gone all the time. And I just said, you know, we have got to do something different because you are missing it. She doesn't, it's not that she doesn't like you. She just doesn't know you. And so we were missing connection, family connection. And what ended up happening is we, cut our acres in half um, mm. and started farming about 2,500 acres. And, and that helped a lot. And um, so, and it was kind of a progression after that. And so we tried to figure out how we could be more profitable uh-huh. on half the acres. And what we found was the way to do that was to try to farm with nature instead of against it. And Mm. so we started adopting, well, what we didn't know at the time was regenerative practices. Uh, So uh, like I said, we were already no-till. So that was very, that wasn't a transition that we had to make. But all of the other things uh, were things that we had to incorporate on on our farm. So, but it helped us eliminate um, insecticide and fungicide and seed treatments, right? All of those went away um, because, well, for one thing, they were costly. And the second thing is, well, nature doesn't use seed treatments of any sort, yeah. right? So so we were trying to figure out a way to do it better on less, with less inputs. And so it just was a steady progression. And in 2014, we started on the path of eliminating our synthetic fertilizer altogether. So Earlier, I had mentioned that we were putting on all of the fertilizers. So variable rate, many different types of fertilizer all at one time. My husband is, had streamlined it. So it was efficient in the fact that he only went down across the land one time to apply the seed and the fertilizer, yeah. but it was so much and so degrading to the soil system, which we didn't realize was happening. Like we didn't, we didn't understand the impact of those synthetic fertilizers on the soil microbiome itself at the time. So let's go back to that regenerative. What does regenerative mean to you? Because obviously there's a huge range of what that can be. I mean, we talked a little bit about less passes. You changed, talked about, you know, some different soil treatments, but what is like, what does like that look like for you now? Well, that's a really great question. And I I think everyone is wanting to kind of define it. Um, So I'll start by saying for us, and I'm interested in finding out your definition too. So I'll go first. Okay. Um, the for regenerative for us is a healing process. So in order for me to call it a healing process, I have to admit that what we did was degrade the soil system before, right? Mm. And we are fully aware of our impact um, on the devastation of the soil when we were conventionally. Um, full-on agronomy farming. And so because we're aware of that, I can admit that the soil needs to be regenerated. And so for us, it's been a healing process to restore something that we had really degraded. Um, and that, that's, a, that's a lot to take in. And it's a lot to own and admit because as farmers, you, we are not, no, I don't know any farmer that's trying to degrade their soil, not one. Um, but when we're going from a system that sh- tells us how to do it and find out on the other side that actually we've been harming the soil system, um, that's a lot to, um, it's emotional, right? Because there's yeah. a huge connection to what we're doing as farmers. And to find out what we were doing was not benefiting the soil or the people it was feeding or the animals it was feeding was really hard to, to, um, to, uh, talk about and admit. So, um, so that, 
so it's a healing process for us. And so that, that's been a huge, huge um, driver of what we're doing is trying to heal uh, the land that we had degraded, basically. Gotcha. So now can you tell me what your definition of regenerative is? Yes, I'm actually trying to find, um, I literally had an email from Elliot Coleman the other day. Um, we were going back about something. And uh, I, I think I want to read a little bit of it because I think, uh, again, Elliot is to me the father of the organic movement in the U.S. I mean, his 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 treatise, treatise um, their new organic grower, I think, took a lot of, well, I think it was one of the first real books that laid out, you know, what his principles for organic was and kind of set the stage for the coming of the market gardening age. Um, you know, and just thinking about it a little bit, though, here, a couple words came to mind is uh, first people, um, planet, and then passion came to mind too. Passion, I think, is part of people, though. So I think there's probably another word I want to go for eventually here. But um, people to me is first is the first it has to be um, it has to work for the farmer. Um, so often you see these farmers that are stuck in the debt cycle where they just literally have to keep farming to make the payments or else they're going to a go out of farming and they carve up their land for, uh, schools and houses and all of that, which again, schools and houses are not inherently bad of themselves, but the lack of losing farmland, the speed that we are is a problem, but people need to be protected. And so the farmer needs to make a good income. And the 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 workers need to make a good income too. So, um, you know, right now the food system is built upon cheap labor, and a lot of that coming from through the southern border. Um, and so, you know, the fact that you know we have two political parties which keep fighting back and forth about making sure we keep the border system broken is part of the problem um, because they we can't have good help that we need come across easily, um, and then because they can't get in illegally, they're being used as illegal workers, which means that they're not getting paid what they deserve. Um, and so for me, regenerative is first about the people because, you know, the second part is planet. And to me, the planet also is about people too, because if we don't take care of the planet, we won't have a place for humans. Um, so the second part to me is planet. And um, planet to me is, you know, first is soil-based. There's a reason there is soil on the planet and there's different types of soil for different crops and different places are suited for different things. Um, we farmed back in New York, we were on six different soil types and it was amazing to see the different crops did really well on different soil types and to be able to match those crops to those soils allowed them to literally, I mean, we get double the yield um, with mm -hmm. one soil top for our brassicas and sweet potatoes would not grow there. I mean, it was just, Absolutely. it was horrible. Mm -hmm. So looking at the, you know, first is soil and this whole aspect of, you know, we're revitalizing the planet. We're uh, reducing our water consumption with, you know, these agro farms, these massive stack farms. Um, that is not regenerative because if we were to, let's say we were to um, have a massive uh, energy crisis, those farms are the first ones that are going out. Now, mm -hmm. water falls naturally all over the U.S., um, certain places it doesn't like the West coast. So in those cases, places, I think we need to have some adjustments there, but to have these massive indoor vertical farms in Ohio, which gets 40 something inches of rain and has plenty of water is, mm -hmm. is almost, and that, that, that is saving the planet. And that is just a, a good thing to me is a little bit of an oxymoron. Because where you, the amount of energy these places are using is tremendous, because the and the amount of energy going into building all the LED lights. So let's take a look at what an LED light takes, and they're coming yeah, all coming sure. from China. It's slave labor over there. They're actively practicing genocide in in China right now, and we are like celebrating this whole vertical farming thing as an as a massive you know saving the earth. It's not when you look at the true cost. Um, so we got soil based, you know, um, Elliot really, so I'd reached out to him about, um, doing something and he reached out and basically said, <laughs> and again, it's a great guy. He says, 
I wonder if this cantankerous old hippie has anything to say that the participants <laughs> in what we were talking about would be interested in listening to. And I haven't responded because anyway, I just thought I had been very busy this week. Um, but what he talks about in organic, he said there were no consultants and no real support groups. There were no replenish or water soluble all organics. We considered water soluble to be a negative and no foliar feeding. We didn't have sprayers because we didn't need them. Even if there were the earliest version of those products, we had no money to buy them. We objected to the commercial industrial world that came from the glorification of money making as the only aim of life. Organic farming was appealing to us. And this farm card from the wilderness is an exact example because we could start with nothing except an intuitive partnership with the natural world, plus an understanding of the importance of soil organic matter. And without doing harm to the planet, create a productive small business, create exceptional nourishing food and thumb our noses at the dominant food paradigm by making its customer our customers because we had a superior product. The scary fact to the old order was that we couldn't be stopped because we did not need anything from the misguided and profit crazed conventional world. Um, so Elliot's just a master of words. And I oh, really, for sure. and I really you sure. know, resonate with that um, because I, I feel that that is, you know, the aspect of the commercialization to their, um, you know, obviously when we were building our farm in New York, we scaled pretty large. We were managing about 14 acres of crops. Um, and uh, now we're here, we're on an eight acre parcel and we're trying to maximize that. Um, and it's always blows my mind with how much food you can raise in a very small poor area if you let the plants do their utmost potential. Um, you know, tomatoes have the capacity to produce 50 pounds of plant. Most of us are not even starting to tap that potential. And if you listen to someone like John Kempf or Dan Kittredge, you hear them talk about, um, you know, every time that you stress a plant and it gets a little bit, it doesn't have enough water. That is decreasing its genetic capacity. Every time it can't find the right nutrients, that is decreasing the genetic capacity. Um, you know, there's places that recommend you can give it up to 800 pounds of, uh, I think it's potassium per acre potash, yeah, potassium per acre on tomatoes, and they'll use it all to produce their, their fruit. And, and on one aspect, yeah, that's great. But the other aspect is like, what is enough? And I think that's another aspect of what regenerative farming is, is that it's not pushing for the maximum maximum. It's giving, it's, it's looking at what is enough because when you start to go for those maximums, typically you're trying to just, as Elliot said, you know, use those foliar sprays, look these liquids on, which may or may not be about the microbiome, about the, the world under our feet. And I think that to me is, is kind of goes with that soil-based aspect is to me, regenerative is feeding the soil, which feeds the plants. And I think we start to understand so much more about this microbiome. I mean, we can build compost that's more um, fungi-based versus bacteria-based. I mean, those whole things that this now really starting to dial in is, I think, um, super important. One thing I'm going to go back to say about the people part of this is um, this spring, we actually, you know, we're not certified organic. We kind of are a little, um, you know, opposed to that for many of the reasons that Elliot is. And, and, and we're, you know, obviously on the real organic bandwagon wagon with soil being the basis. But one of the things that real that organic doesn't cover, and again, most of these programs is thinking about the family side of farming, because so many farmers I know are burnt out. They don't have time for their family. And again, you get one shot with your kids. I um, mean, that's something I'm really thinking about. You know, I just watched the kids grow before my eyes and realized I only have a certain number of days left to spend with them. Um, so we kind of came up with our own label this spring called the 100% kid friendly, uh, safe. Mm -hmm. and, and part of that is obviously, you know, we want anything that they eat outside to be able to just, you know, pluck off the plant and eat like our strawberries. We're not going to spray anything that they wouldn't be able to just grab a strawberry and eat it. Um, now, granted, there are obviously things you want to, there's different things to ask, but think about that. Um, but it even came back to the aspect of um, equipment. You know, what equipment's kid-friendly, what kid's safe? You know, these massive tractors that are, you know, 800 horsepower, you know, a kid could walk behind them. You get on that tractor and not even know them were there. And they would be, you know, they could be killed very easily. Um, you know, there's a number of uh, some of these, you know, a lot, again, it's all comes, a lot of it comes back to the conventional. There is some, you know, in the organic world too, but these larger systems, I mean, manure lagoons, incredibly family uh, horrible. I, um, we lived back in New York and when we first moved there, we were having some work done on the house 
And uh, we had these contractors and they were all great. They were all part of the fire department. So they had their squawkers on their, their radios on while they were working. And um, one day we were working with them and we heard, okay, we got an emergency at a farm. Someone fell in manure pit and um, you know, they were unconscious or unresponsive. And then about 20 minutes later, we got two in the manure pit. And then about 20 minutes later, a third fell in the manure pit. Um, I think a total of four people ended up going to the manure pit and they just thought, I'm just going to get that last person out. I just need to, I just hold my breath and I'll be able to grab them. Um, and three people lost their lives that day because a um, pump, a, a basically air pump had not uh, functioned correctly or something like that. And, and they died from the, the fumes. Um, and that to me right there is kind of the essence of, you know, what a regenerative farming isn't. Is that, you know, right. basically you're, again, you're for, for one thing, we've watched the dairy industry was just gutted in the last three, three decades from the, you know, horizon and these massive companies deciding to put 5,000 cow feedlots. And again, I don't know if you saw the recent that um, California just got $130 million in grants to do um, climate safe or climate something uh, almonds and dairies in California. California mm. doesn't have any water. Why the heck do we think bear farming, which again, was denuding the soil because that's how they do almonds out there is literally there's nothing underneath them. It's just black dirt. And they, every couple of weeks they go through and they use the machine to basically stir it up even more. That is so anti-regenerative. Um, well, and, then, and how, and how much water does it oh, take absolutely. for a dairy cow? A tremendous oh. amount. Yeah. Yes. Tremendous yes. amount. So we're doing that in California. Yes. I mean, the right. dairy to me is something that should be done in, you know, Michigan and Wisconsin and New York, where they have plenty of lush grass and it's not so hot that the cows are struggling. Um, but I digress. Um, so, I, I get so that, so I don't know if I just, I, I kind of gave you the whole aspects of where I really feel, you know, there's obviously other, other aspects of the regenerative side. Um, you know, even like our use of, and again, this is a crutch I think we use. And I, I think the, is the, like the chicken manure, a lot, so many organic farmers use the replenish. I mean, Elliot mentioned is um, the chicken manure because it's high in calcium and it provides a little shot and it's got, it's got an organic matter at the same time. And we use a lot of it because it is something that, um, you know, that works and it's cheap. I mean, we're paying, I think 250, no, 300 a ton um, or maybe 350 a ton now for that pro those products, and it's it's really cheap and it works well, but it's a crutch. I mean, like really, we should be working with the ideal nutrients that come and or compost. Just using a lot of compost. So yeah, so that's one of the things that I'm just you know looking at now. So I go back to that and say regenerative is the essence of constant improvement. So, oh, I agree 100. And so, I, I think that that's really important. Yeah. So what I would look at is you look at what the Rodale Institute has been doing over the last couple decades there, and they have gotten to the point where they don't have to put any fertilizer down and they can grow just as beautiful a crop of corn as the conventional farm next door. Um, and it's because they've spent so long building the, the microbiome in the soil. Um, you look at what Steve Groff is doing. Now, Steve is a, still a conventional farmer in the aspect that he does use some herbicides, um, but he's also now put no tilling to the point that he can have three inches of rain and he can drive right out into his field and harvest. And basically, you know, there's no ruts, there's no runoff. It's tremendous. Um, he shared something this summer where they took off a hemp crop and, um, in that, and, and they then turned around and seeded right away. But in the meantime, they had a two inch gully washer and that caused some problems. And so, you know, kind of the thing was, Hey, this is the problem. Here's what's going on. I'm just showing you guys. And so the comments were, okay, so how do we fix this for next year? So, you know, I think that aspect of that constant improvement of how can we do better and, um, you know, thinking better is, um, is, is part of that. We, you know, one of the things that we did this spring is I have a, a personal coach and he was really pushing me for why do you do what you do? Because once you really get your why, then everything else goes, goes, goes much better. And, you know, it really came back to part of it is we exist to nourish the world. Um, our company does. And how we do that is we train farmers to be more sustainable, more profitable, more productive so that they have the time so they can focus on producing a better quality crop. Because when you are really rushed and you don't have any time and you're stressed out, you don't do those little tweaks. Um, you know, one of the things with Elliot is Elliot has spent, I don't know how many years now he's been farming. I'd say it's over 40 um, to just keep working on what makes better food grow. 
Um, you know, that line in there, he said, um, Thummer knows the dominant food paradigm by making its customers our customers because we did a superior product. And um, that right there is, is, you know, when you have a superior product, it's going to have more nu nutrients. And one of the things we see, see in the U.S. and see around the world is we have people that are fed with empty calories. And they're, right. they're, they're basically, their bones are basically breaking because they don't have the nutrients. I mean, they're fat and happy and incredibly sick. You're right. Overfed and malnourished yes, at the over, same time. Correct. And that right there is, is, um, that right there is the whole thing. A crux of it is right. Is, I, yeah. So, all right, that's, this right. is your podcast. And I literally spent like, I don't know, what was it, 10, 20 minutes going off on what organic regenerative organic should be. Uh, but, uh, anyway, <laughs> well, I can, I agree with the people part 100%. So um, as I was describing that the regeneration for our farm started as a healing process to the soil, right? Yeah. What we didn't understand was the trickle effect and how it was going to heal our family mm. as far as our time together. Um, and the amount of uh, what that value is in that for my kids to, to be able to know who their dad is. Um, that's invaluable. Like you can't mm. put a, you can't put a number on that. And, you know, on our farm currently, um, and since 2017, it's just my husband and I, so, um, we're in the field together in the spring and we harvest together in the fall. So it's just the two of us. And so we can get spread pretty thin during those busy times. And, um, what we saw, and this is kind of the transition um, from taking our grains, all of our grains directly to the local elevator and selling them on the commodity market. It was in 2020 with the whole pandemic and there was no food on the shelves and there was no flour to be found anywhere. And um, I just said to my husband, you know, at some point, the regeneration of our farm has to leave here to have a lasting impact. We have to spread the regeneration from our farm out into the community. And the best way we can do that is through better food. Mm -hmm. And, and so that set me on a path of trying to figure out how we could offer our grains direct to consumer or bakeries or restaurants. Um, and keep them out of the elevator and not get commingled with grains that had been grown conventionally, you know, full on conventionally. And so, um, and right now, and that's the goal is to expand that market. And so we get more of our, of the grain we grow direct uh, to consumer and um, to the end user uh, to, you know, minimize the uh, amount of grain that we sell as a commodity, because that's yeah. the other, the other problem with conventional agriculture is that we're taught to grow a commodity. They Absolutely. take the, the emotion right out of it by saying they don't even talk about food and farming anymore. And like grain farming, there's no, they're the, they don't mention food. You are growing a commodity and it's traded like that. When you yeah. talk about tr growing a commodity, that takes the emotion out of it. When you remind yourself that you are growing food, it changes things. Yeah. And it changes the way you treat the plants on your on your soil. So when you start when we start putting our the the grains that we grow on our plate, it changes things. It changes it. So if um like for instance, um, the, like with the seed treatment, uh, if I can't eat the seed coming out of the air seeder or coming out of my little drill, like I shouldn't feed it to my soil. Yeah. If you know what I mean? Like if yeah. I can't feed it to myself, I certainly shouldn't feed it to my soil. So, yeah. um, and if, if my seeds look like a bag of Skittles, every yes. color under the rainbow, it can be, it's a problem. Yeah. So, um, and my goal is that more farmers will start to put the grains they grow on their table. Um, and because when we do that, it changes the way we think about how we treat that field or that farm altogether. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I think the connectedness 
Um, there's the farmers are missing the connection with the food they're growing and that's not on accident, right? Yeah. Well, you, they figure out if they can separate you from the product and commoditize it, then it can be sold at the lowest price possible, which makes the highest profit for everyone else except the farmer. Right. And then you're willing to do whatever you have to do to get all the bushels you need to pay Correct. for those inputs and to Correct. keep you on this terrible treadmill, Yeah, you know, on and this hamster wheel of debt. Yes. And the treadmill of they, they actually selling you the, uh, the supplies to grow the crop, which then buy the crop back. And so they literally you're in debt to them 11 months out of the year. Oh, and then by the way, you also can't save your own seed, right? Yes. Like that's yeah. crazy. Yeah. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. So, and that's, so on our farm, right. We're talking about, we, we like to save our own seed. So, and that is, that has been a progression into growing more ancient grains. So ancient uh -huh. varieties of wheat, um, ancient varieties of barley. Uh, and that was, you know, kind of a natural progression because of the soil health benefit from those older varieties that yeah. haven't been hybridized. And we've been able to, they benefit our soil in ways that we had never imagined possible. Um, and so as we try I think going forward, more and more of our grain um, will be more of these old, older heritage varieties because mm. of the soil health benefit. And yeah. the reason I started growing them was because I had heard, well, right, people are having trouble with gluten. Should we talk about that? So um, people are having trouble with gluten. And I had heard that people with gluten sensitivities could tolerate heritage grains better maybe because they mm. hadn't been hybridized. So yeah. I sought out, I sought out certain varieties, old varieties uh, of grain that we could grow on our farm uh, to offer those direct to our customers that were buying whole grain. And, um, and, you know, so it started off to give people what they wanted, but it turned out to be beneficial to our soil and to our farm a hundred percent. So um, they produce these heritage wheats and barleys produce so much biomass and so much root structure. Um, so it's so much airspace going into my soil, so much mm. biomass to cover up the land, to help with weed control and help um, capture as much of the sun's energy as we can to get as much carbon exudates into the soil as we can. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, does and like I said, we are on a very short growing season. We have 134 days of growing season. So we need to capture as much sunlight and energy in that time as possible. And these heritage grains do that. They're amazing. Um, so, and especially in our system where we're not adding any sort of fertilizer. So we're not adding any sort of synthetic fertilizer and we're also not adding organic fertilizer. So we are 100% biologically fed that mean and so um those heritage varieties love that they mm -hmm. love it we also grow a modern wheat that we've been saving the seed for 10 or 11 years right so every year we grow new seed and we put in new seed every year so even though that seed is uh, adjusted and used to our soil it is not as resilient um to to our no input mm. system as are the heritage grains were, are, are as they are. So that's, it's just very interesting because it's grown in the same soil system and it's saved seed for 10 or 11 years every year. And it still, it still does not have the resiliency of these older grains. So um, it, like I said, it turned out, it was starting just to be something to offer to bakers that really wanted to use ancient grains. And it turned out to benefit our farm exponentially. And so the other th then challenge is the market for those grains, right? So, yeah. <clears throat> um, so some of the ancient wheats we grow, if they're a hard red wheat, I can take those to the elevator and unload those, right? At a regular hard red spring wheat pricing, even though they're a heritage grain. And heritage grains are worth more because they grow, you know, the, because they tell you they will yield less. 
So you need to have more money for those heritage grains than you do like a hybridized wheat. Yeah. Um, but what we found this year um, was that uh, our heritage wheat versus our modern spring wheat, they were within two bushels of each other. Oh, wow. Grown in the same system. So I am not growing the same amount of bushels that I that we grew under um, our full-on agronomy yeah. model, right? But those are not real. Like those are, those are synthetic bushels. Like those are not natural at all. I had to pump everything to get those bushels out. And I think it shows up in the food system. I think mm -hmm. that's why the part of the reason we're having gluten intolerance and things like this is not only the hybridizing of the wheat, but yeah. the growing practices, these synthetic nutrients that are put on to pump up yields are really devastating. And I think we're finding that in, in the human microbiome now. And it's been a trickle effect. And so they, what's, and so that's, it's just really been fun to watch the evolution of our farm in the last, you know, nine or 10 years on how it's changing and growing all the time and, and, and how important it is to not be limited to what we can do because on every, any given year, we might have to change up and do what we're doing to do what's best for the soil. Like for instance, Last year, we were in a D4 drought. We had less than four inches of moisture the entire growing season. And um, so needless to say, there were, there were farmers next to me that are conventional farmers that didn't even harvest their wheat. Wow. We, we did harvest our wheat. There was not much there, but it was worth going after. So yeah. uh, we were able to, you know, use the water that we did get to produce the little bit of crop that we did see. Um, and I think that, you know, but so because of that, um, there was not much biomass left on our fields. And so where we're at in central North Dakota, we are in, in the hills and the okay. wind. And so that's where the no-till becomes very important to eliminate the wind erosion and the water erosion. And so in these hills, um, it becomes all that more like, so there wasn't enough biomass um, to keep things, our microbial community fed. So they were like starting to die. And you can see that in the soil. When you put a spade in the soil, you can actually see where you've had death of microbial life. And mm. it actually makes a black layer, right? And so... Um, that was happening because we weren't able to keep them covered enough to keep them fed because of our lack of biomass after a D4 drought. So because of that, we had to break rotation this year. And instead of putting in yellow peas, flax, and yellow mustard into our rotation that don't leave a lot of biomass um, and don't cover the soil very well, um, we had to switch all take all of those out of the rotation and go completely 100% small grains so we could get um, a good carbon source for mm. our microbial community. Because like I said, we're 100% biologically fed. If that community starts dying off, I'm in real trouble because yeah. I don't have a, you know, you talked about how chicken manure or anything could be a crutch. I don't have that. There's nothing I can add um, to my system. So yeah. it, so it really becomes important to be able to be flexible enough on an annual basis to make those decisions to change rotation, in, in which we have never done that. We have never completely broken rotation and taken up all the other um, different grains we grow and gone straight to cereals. We've never done that. But this year there was, we just didn't, we had to put the soil health first and that's what we did. So, I mean, and I think that it's important part of our, the um, farming, you know, in, in our regenerative system is the flexibility to not be contained and have to do, um, have to stick to doing exactly the same thing every year because it, every year is different and it should be. If, yeah. we're, if we're farming with nature, we need to be able to be flexible enough to, to follow through with that. So it gets to be, it gets to be challenging, but actually very exciting because you just, we just never know what we're going to get. Right. And our limiting factor is water. 
So like I said, we, last year we had um, under four inches of rain moisture the entire season. This year we had eight. And yeah. so, and, and as we know, um, and as we're learning through all of the new soil um, science that's coming out with all of the brilliant, brilliant people in it, you know, Dr. Elaine Ingham, um, yeah. Dr. James White out of Rutgers University doing all of the amazing things with the rhizophagy cycle. I mean, these are, we're learning that biology needs water to be active. Yeah. And so if I'm, re, you know, 100% biologically fed from the microbial community in the soil, and I don't have water to activate their energy, it becomes a problem. Uh, so, and it, it just gets to be a really important um, aspect of us to conserve as much water as possible and to infiltrate every bit of water that we can, whether that in, and that might only be a heavy dew in the morning, but we have to be able to utilize it and store it and keep it because we don't know when the next rain's coming. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Thriving Farmers, each year we are faced with two important investment decisions. We should be investing in systems that increase productivity and in inputs that develop soil. In December of 2020, I was introduced to a seed, soil, and foliar prebiotic treatment. This product is called Ultra. Ultra is an OMRI-listed prebiotic formula manufactured by AgriGrow. I have personally been running several trials testing Ultra on my farm. I'm impressed. Ultra increased our strawberry yield production by 18%. On a 900 square foot trial, $6 in product cost returned me $868 worth of marketable strawberries. We also had decade old heirloom corn seed that I've been trying to germinate with no success. In a Hail Mary attempt with my remaining few seeds, I soaked them overnight in a diluted solution of Ultra. They germinated. If you would like to try Ultra or any other agrigo product, I believe this would be a worthwhile investment on your farm. Here's the best news yet. AgriGrow has agreed to offer a 10% discount to all Thriving Farmer listeners. Simply use the coupon code THRIVE when you check out. Again, that is T-H-R-I-V-E for a 10% off discount on your first order. Head to smallfarm.solutions to order today. Talk to us a little bit about, because um, you've gone from, now you're growing this these ancient wheats and all these uh, these barley and, and the um, milling oats and all of that. You've gone to processing it. Talk us through a little bit about how you're processing it. You know, what's the difference between a stone milled flour versus, you know, regular flour? Sure. That's, yeah, great. Um, and I, just so you know, like I'm, we are new to this also. So it's all fairly, we're learning constantly. Um, when it comes to the processing of, of the grain itself. So I will tell you that the hardest thing we've ever done as farmers, it's not transitioning from conventional to a, a natural system to a more regenerative system. That was not hard. That was just deciding to do it and doing it. Um, the hardest thing um, in our farming system has been marketing our grains directly to consumers, restaurants, bakeries, because most farms, grain farms specifically, are not set up to clean the grain to um, and to store it, right? So that has been the infrastructure piece of that has been the most difficult part of farming. And in these last two years, it has been a real challenge. And so it's like I said, it started in 2020 by offering um, whole grains. I was introduced to a home milling group like that home mills their flour with a countertop mill. Okay. Um, a little stone mill. And I was like, the people are doing this? Like, and it was during the pandemic where nobody could get flour. And all of a sudden people were home and they were wanting to do baking and they were wanting to do baking the way grandma used to do it. Yeah. And so- there was a huge amount, a huge amount of people that were looking for grain that was clean. And so we had been cleaning our own seed. And so that was not that much of a challenge to get it to, to do that part, but the infrastructure and keeping it separate has been a huge challenge and then finding the market for it. Mm. So, so we started with just that. And that started, honestly, Michael, that started with one bucket. It started wow. with one five-gallon bucket. I was on an online community um, classified page um, app, 
and they there was an I just happened to log in and I saw this ad in search of desiccant free hard red wheat. And I was like, what? Who can be? And he wanted 25 pounds. And so I called my husband and I said, hey, can I get um, uh, two buckets of uh, spring wheat brought into the house? He was like, sure. And so um, he brought it in. He was like, what are you going to do with that? I said, I'm going to sell it. And he said, to who? And I said, there's somebody on, on online looking for desiccant free, which mm. if, if, if your listeners don't know, desiccant free means that it, it hasn't been sprayed to dry it down before harvest. Correct. Right. So, and we don't, we don't desiccate on our farm. Um, so, and I, and he's like, and I said, how, what, what would this cost? What, which, what would I charge this customer for these two five gallon buckets of grain? He said, well, you have less than one bushel of wheat there. Yeah. Um, and I was like, okay. I said, well, that's only at the time it was only $4 and 50 cents for a bushel of wow. wheat. And I said, well, my bucket, my food grade bucket costs $7. I can't yeah. charge $4 and 50 cents for these two grains. My buckets cost more than that. And he said, well, I don't know what to tell you. And I was like, well, he said he'd pay me $25. And Kelly said, $25 for two buckets of grain? Like he was amazed that anyone yeah. would pay that much. And I said, no, he said he'd give me $25 for each bucket. And he was like, oh my gosh. I was like, people are really wanting to find grain and they don't know where to get it. That's, yeah. that's, and I said, and we can grow grow it till it comes out of our ears. We should be making it available to people. And so that's how it started, Michael. It started with one bucket. And I'm happy to say he is my original supporter, right? My first, my original customer. And he was able to come out to the farm this year and ride with me in the combine while he picked up his bucket of grain. Um, And he comes back and he refills his bucket. And it's pretty awesome, that relationship spark something in me yeah. that that changed the way I looked at what we were doing. And so, so like I said, that's how it started was with one bucket and um, it has grown exponentially since. And then, uh, and we started, I developed a website and we started selling online and we ship buckets of grain, bags of grain all over the United States. And uh, last fall I had decided I wanted to offer something that was so not everyone's going to know what to do with a wheat berry, which I didn't even know they were called wheat berries, right? It was we, we grow wheat. So I just thought it was seed, but <laughs> um, in, in the baking community, they're called a wheat berry. So not everyone knows what to do with a wheat berry as a, as a food product. And not everyone has a home mill on their for flour on their countertop. Which, by the way, it only takes as much space as a Keurig machine, and it's fast. I I encourage everyone to have uh, one of these little countertop mills um, because it's amazing and has completely transformed the way um, I bake. Um, and I've ne- I have not bought a loaf of bread in over two years. Mm. So, um, but there are people that are not going to have a countertop flour mill, and so. I said to my husband, I said, what are, what are two pantry staples? What are, what I'll ask you, Michael, what are two things that everyone has in their pantry? Well, are you talking my wife's pantry? You're talking. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, I mean, it's something she's going to have always in hers is, I mean, we have flowers because, but we're gluten-free. So she has like 16 different flowers in there. Um, And then. (laughs) She's obviously got, I'm just trying to think what else we keep in our pantry. Salt, sugar, obviously are two huge ones. Um, I mean, there's a whole bunch of other things she keeps in there, but yeah. Okay. Well, and she might have pasta, right? Uh, Oh, well, yes. And it's always, it's probably typically gluten-free. So we have a garbanzo bean pasta. Yes. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Right. So those are, so my husband didn't know either. He really struggled. He was like, I have no idea. And (laughs) so I said, well, (laughs) the two, two, two paint, uh, pantry staples are flour and pasta. And I said, why not um, make guardian grains, flour and pasta available for people's pantry? Mm. If they're going to have flour and pasta in there anyway, why not have it be from our farm? 
And he's like, great. Sounds great. I don't know how you're going to do that. Um, But it sounds great. Uh, Of course. And that was, that was his, that was the extent of the conversation. And then I took it and I ran with it. There are four different pasta producers in our state. Okay. And so I thought it would be fairly simple to have them make pasta and then co-pack it with my label and in my brand. Um, It turns out it isn't that easy. Uh, They were happy to co-pack and put my label on, on pasta, but they couldn't tell me if the wheat that I brought in was mine. Like the, the, the pasta that I got back, they couldn't guarantee me that it was the wheat I brought in. Um, And so that really defeated the purpose because it lost the traceability. So all of a sudden I wasn't selling regeneratively grown pasta. I was selling pasta from who knows where and, and they weren't willing to use stone milled flour. So we talked about stone milled flour being um, low temperature Mm -hmm. and all three parts of the kernel come out in the flour. So you have the bran, the germ, and by the way, those are the two most important parts for digestion of the grain. And then we have endosperm. Those are the three parts of the grain and they get milled through a stone to through between two stones. And then that whole nutrition pasta or the whole nutrition flour, we add water to it and make pasta. So like I said, they weren't willing to use stone milled flour because they weren't familiar with that. What they were familiar with was roller milled flour. Yeah. And roller milled flour is highly extractive. So it takes away all the bran and all the germ and just leaves you with the center part of the kernel, which is endosperm. But guess what endosperm is made up of? Endosperm is made up of starch and sugar. Mm. So um, it's completely nutrient deplete. There is not, there is not one ounce of usable nutrition in, in straight endosperm without the germ in the bran that becomes completely impossible for our bodies to recognize it as nutrients, which mm-hmm. is a huge problem with roller milling flour. And that was the only flour they were using to uh, make pasta in my in the state of North Dakota. And they call it salmolina pop, uh, flour. And that's actually from Durham. And I was wanting to use hard red wheat. Um, so basically I wanted to do something completely different. They didn't know how to do it. They were too big to do it. They couldn't do it. So, um, I started working with a a place in Fargo in North Dakota, at North Dakota state university called Northern crop Institute. And they introduced me to, um, uh, the stone mill, um, which is a new American stone mill. It's made in Vermont. Uh, so it's made, made, um, right here in the US. And they had one at their facility that we could come see and then they would show us how to make how the pasta process process went. Mm. And, and they use granite from Vermont too, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's from it's local. And it's yeah, very I've been, local. I've, I've been by that quarry. I know. Oh, okay, sweet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it no, and he's a visionary. This um Andrew Hayne is a visionary as far as he was a baker and decided he needed to develop this stone mill and it's all and it's and it's great. So and it, and I love the fact that it was all sourced in the US, right? Made locally. That was a huge, a huge, huge um part of the decision of going with that that particular stone mill. So it so that, and so we watched how the process of the pasta was going to work at this Northern Crop Institute. And they told me, well, we can't use all of it. We're going to have to sift off the bran and then hammer mill the bran and then reintroduce it. I said, well, then that's too much processing. I said, I want it to be stone milled into flour and that whole flour taken into your pasta machine, added water, and then and then extruded into pasta. And they said, well, that the brand will be too tough to do that. And I said, well, if it's too tough, then we don't need to continue this project because I, I, I'm not trying to give people more of what they already have, mm. right? I'm trying to give them something else. And so he was reluctant, but agreed to try it my way and was shocked when it worked. Um, so we were able to produce um, 
a pasta that is brass dye pressed. So it's an artisan pasta and has kind of a rough texture on it. And with using our French heritage wheat, and that was really important to me to be able to use a French, like the heritage wheat. And so it would be an option for people that have gluten sensitivities, um, an easier option. And so we went with that and we add water. So it's two ingredients. We don't add any egg. Uh, oh, wow. They just, they told me at the, um, at the facility that we should add egg powder because it would help with the consistency. And I said, well, then it's not a vegan option. Right. And so, and I'm also having to add something that I didn't grow. Right. So if we, if we can just add water, just like we do to our crop. Right. So in the field, that's all we do is add rainwater. Um, I wanted to be able to do that same thing to produce this pasta with our flour. And so we took full nutrition, French heritage flour, added water and produced pasta with it that day. And so the flavor is awesome. The texture is amazing. It holds a ton of sauce, which is great. Um, and then we ran into the problem of not having anybody be able to do it. And so and I'll fast forward to the end. I got introduced to this um, Tuttle Rural Innovation Center in my state. It sounds like a very big facility, but the interesting part is it's a hundred year old schoolhouse in the town of Tuttle, North Dakota. And there are 60 to 65 people living in this town. The school um, has been not been used for um, learning in quite some time and it had been revamped to be a community center um, as a, a, and relabeled as the Tuttle Rural Innovation Center. And in this 100-year-old schoolhouse, they have a commercial kitchen in the basement and where they used to you know, make all the lunches for all the kids that were going to school, but now it's a USDA-inspected kitchen. And in this kitchen, uh, they had a, uh, an Italian pasta extruder just sitting there under a tarp, not getting used. Um, and when I contacted them about producing pasta, I would, had all the questions like, how, I mean, how often do you produce the pasta? Who makes it? Um, how, how many pounds do you put out a day? You know, I had all the questions. And the, the director of the facility was so great. She was like, oh, we don't have anybody to run it. And I was like, wait, what? And she's like, no, we don't have anybody to run it. Um, we were hoping to rent it out with the, the kitchen space. And I was like, oh, gosh. And Michael, just to put it in perspective, it's 110 miles from oh, wow. my farm, from my farm to this um, 100 year old schoolhouse in the town of Tuttle, North Dakota. And yeah. so it's not like it's a stone's throw away. Um, and I was like, oh, my gosh. Um, well, I was still interested enough to go to the facility and see it. And, and so I brought stone milled flour from my own countertop mill because I didn't have a stone mill yet um, because we were still in the planning phase of it. So um, I brought my own stone milled flour to the Tuttle Rural Innovation Center and we get there and um, to see the, the old schoolhouse. And it's like any hundred year old schoolhouse that you can imagine in your mind. Um, it's brick, it's two story, it's got... It's, you know, um, and we walked in and it was um, November in North Dakota. So it was cold and it was snowing. Mm. And we walked in and I, I basically, I say my husband, Kelly, basically checked out because there was no heat in this building. Uh, they had lost the coal furnace had gone out and um, there was no heat. And I said, how are we going to try this machine with no heat? She's like, well, we have electricity. We can warm the water. And she was very accommodating and full of energy and totally willing to do this with no heat in the building. And it was cold. And um, so we produced pasta, quickly found out it worked to run through this Italian pasta extruder. And we left there and my husband on our drive home uh, he reached over and put his hand on my knee and said, I'm really sorry, this isn't going to work out for you. Mm. And I looked at him and I said, what are you talking about? We are doing this. And he was like, wait, what? 
I was like, oh yeah, we're doing this. He was like, Deanna, there's no heat in that building. And I said, they're fixing it. They ordered the part. And he was like, Deanna, there's no people in the town. I was like, I just need two. I just need two people. We can offer them full-time jobs and mm. uh, they can work Monday through Friday, right? And he was like, you're never gonna find anybody. Well, so fast forward, um, that was in November and um, we were able to secure a grant to uh, purchase the stone mill from New American Stone Mill. And we got that and that was delivered in March. Um, I rented the space in Tuttle in the, in the old schoolhouse. I rented the space in the kitchen, which included the, the rental of the pasta extruder. I found two local employees, um, a couple that um, worked together and lived together. You know, they lived together and now they work together. Um, and they are producing pasta and stone milling flour out of this hundred year old schoolhouse in the town of 60. And they're doing it five days a week. Um, and so that was the stone mill moved in, in March and in April we were in full production. Wow! So it moved very fast. And, um, and if it hadn't been a, you know, boots on the ground effort, if I would have had to go through a bunch of red tape and file for loans and things like this, it, we would still be waiting, but because we were able to utilize existing infrastructure that was already there in this town that's 110 miles away from me and we had two employees that lived in town just outside of town that were willing to do the work um we were able to move this and you know propel this thing forward with not a lot a whole lot of red tape and and so it's been amazing and so I have two great teammates that work um at the mill and they produce flour to order so it's it's milled fresh as it's ordered. And oh, then wow. they uh, produce the pasta uh, from, like I said, we're still producing it from the French heritage wheat. Uh, and so they do that and they ship out of the town of Tuttle um, every day of the week. And it's really been an amazing um, adventure um, and, and awesome to see our farm our farms regeneration spread out, like I said, into a small community mm. and utilize an existing infrastructure that was already there. And to find two local people that are wanting to work together to um, bring the grains from our regenerative farm to the masses, right? It's, it's really been um, a whirlwind, uh, but so, so rewarding and also very challenging. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Talk to me a little bit. Why did you choose the name Guardian Grains? Hmm. Well, um, like I said, when we started selling our grain by the bucket, um, the first thing I did was design a, a logo. And um, so the logo I designed had a had the outline of our state and then it had um, roots going through the state. Mm -hmm. And a heart at the top. And the, at the base of the heart is about where it lands in the middle of the state and it's about where our farm would be on a map. Mm. And, and it has wheat coming out of the heart because I wanted people to know that that's what we grow. And we're kind of a gluten-full facility, like gluten-full farm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it started with a logo first and um, I didn't have a name for it when I started marketing direct to local customers. And um and my, I said to my husband, I said, I really think I need a name. I think this is a, I think this is a thing. And he was like, really? I was like, yeah, I think it, I think this is something that people need and I think people want it. And, um, and so the grain part was easy, right? Cause that's what we grow. We grow grain. Um, the guardian part came in because I feel like that's our job, um, as farmers now is to guard the soil and to protect the life. And so I feel like we are really trying to be guardians of, of the earth, right? And of the people and trying to produce the best that we can um, from the soil that we, that's here, you know? Um, and so that's really, that's, it, it just came to me. I, I really can't, it, it's like a lot of things that happen um, uh, with, 
with the evolution of the farm, it just, it just kind of popped in there. And I said to my husband, I said, what do you think of guardian grains? And he said, I think I like it. And I said, I think I do too. And so it just kind of had a, it was a, it it was really an organic evolution of, of, of how, how the name came to be. Like I said, it started with the bucket and, and logo, and then I needed a name to go by. And so that's just really how it, that's really how it evolved was kind of, it's all boots on the ground, right? Straight from the farm gate, right? It's just, yeah, it's it's been a, it's been an interesting journey. Mm, That's awesome. So folks can go to guardiangrains.com and order directly from you guys, correct? Yes. And so we are in a few retailers in uh, the state of North Dakota, but really my focus is going direct to consumer and being, you know, people are so used to buying online and having it delivered to their store, especially in the last three years. I mean, that's become more commonplace all the time. And so we, uh, that has been our focus for marketing is going direct to consumer. So that way they have that the people buying our grains, buying our flour, buying our pasta, they have a direct connection of where their food is coming from. It comes directly from my farm and mm. they have transparency from me. They have traceability from me. And so, yeah, we ship it through um, guardiangrains.com um, every day of the week. And um, that's where they can sh- find us and shop online. And it's fairly simple. So it works out pretty good. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today, coming on and sharing your story. Uh, it was fun chatting about, you know, what regenerative is and um, yeah, this is, you know, something I think, you know, obviously the vegetable revolution, you know, last 20 years of like CSAs and all of that has been great. But one of the things that I feel like has been lagging a little bit behind has been the aspect of the grains. And so seeing this business, you know, jumping off the ground and providing this is awesome. And uh, yeah, it's just the variety you have and just your energy and passion behind it. So yeah, thanks so much, Deanna, for coming on today. Thanks, Michael, for having me. This episode is sponsored by Rimmel Greenhouse Systems, makers of quality greenhouse structures. Whether you're just getting started or buying your 10th tunnel, Rimmel has a structure to fit your needs. I've purchased and grown in Rimmel houses and would recommend them to everyone. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer Podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.